to the AO Trauma North America Mentor-Mentee Interview Series. I'm Stephen Scheinman, an orthopedic trauma surgeon at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Thank you for tuning in. I would like to remind you that the video recordings of the Mentor-Mentee interviews are available on the AO Trauma North America YouTube channel. And don't forget to check out other Mentor-Mentee interviews on the AO Trauma North America Spotify channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm excited to bring you an interview between Dr. Langdon Hartsock from the Medical University of South Carolina and his mentor, Dr. Andy Burgess from UT Houston. Uh, it's really my pleasure to uh, interview Dr. Andy Burgess in Houston, Texas, one of the most famous orthopedic trauma surgeons in the U.S. and perhaps in the entire world. I had the great pleasure of having him as my fellowship director at uh, Shock Trauma in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Tell us how you got involved in orthopedics. I started college as, uh, as an aeronautical engineering student and, and you do ME uh, mechanical engineering before that. And um, I flunked out of college. And uh, they actually, it was a fairly tough school and um, at Cornell and uh, Worked a little bit and got back into a smaller college in the Midwest and uh, graduated. Still interested in in engineering, but developed an, an interest in in medicine and thought that's what I wanted to do. But I'd blown it by uh, by getting thrown out of college. So I had to go to graduate school for four years and, uh, and and show them I was serious. And I was in an anatomy program uh, funded by NASA, by the way, and and uh, National Science Foundation and. Uh, and was lucky enough to get into the second year program at the College of New York. And, and from, so from the beginning, I had this interest in mechanics and interest in, in biology. And I taught gross anatomy and the combination of understanding anatomy, all of us that were gonna be anatomy professors took quite a bit of physical anthropology. I started thinking I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon in, in medical school and um, stayed where I was in Albany, New York and did my residency there and went into private practice, even though I had an interest in trauma, decided to just stick with ortho. Was in private practice for a while. My partner had a substance abuse problem and I left after a year and a half and my old buddy Bruce Browner was running a trauma unit and I knew I was interested in that. Moved into a fellowship in, in sort of the, the first week in April in 81 and Bruce was running shock trauma in Baltimore and that's, I was in heaven. The, the volume was immense. Uh, I was the only fellow, and a, a year later, I was the only attending. In the meantime, when I was a resident in Albany, I took a course in Switzerland, and one of the early AO courses, and said, "These folks have the way. It's, it's, um, they must be that smart." And and the education there w w came through, and the, and the enthusiasm. And when I got back to uh, to my fellowship, I tacked on an extra three month fellowship with Tom Rudy in in Switzerland in Coeur following my shock trauma fellowship. And the early version of shock trauma in 1980 and 81 and 82 was a gift. Really, um, Baltimore was the, the first or maybe the second really true what was gonna become level one trauma centers where polytraumatized patients arrived in one place. And the gift to a, a, an orthopedist early in a career that was thinking of trauma was in the physical plan and then the politics. We, we were all fairly well trained, but a high volume of uh, blunt trauma and some 
penetrating was delivered to one site and we had took over an abandoned hospital. That's where we started. That was tacked onto the University of Maryland system. And the resuscitation area was across the hall, 10 feet away from where we operated. Patient would come in, be resuscitated, you know, five or 10 yards of you. A lot of times, if they need an opinion in a musculoskeletal injury, let's say a, a blunt pelvic trauma, you remember there was no, no uh, CAT scan yet, no interventional angio, no ultrasound. It was a patient with a blunt trauma to one part of their body. Let's talk about the pelvis, a plain film. Often the EMT that had brought, delivered them was still in the room cleaning their stretcher up or something. They ask you to come over and, and physically examine something that confused the general surgeons. We had no ER doctors, general surgeons and anesthesia running, running the, the resuscitation. And you were there, not called up from an ER two years after work, two hours after workup started, but walking over within the first 10 to 20 minutes, getting your hands on something, looking up at a plain film and getting a set of vital signs, hearing a little bit about the history. This was a big T-bone or something else from a helicopter pilot or a medic that had been on the scene, ejection from a vehicle. So you had all this piece of data and mainly, mainly it was your hands, your physical exam, and understanding what a plain film and a set of vitals meant. The gift there was, as new technology was introduced, let's just talk about CAT or interventional angio, you already had, we were getting 300 pelvic ring disruptions a year then. For a while, I was the only attending, but, but um, we quickly went to three of us. But you were there for most of the cases, and you developed this library in your hands, and then you in your common sense. And if you had a little interest in car crashes, which I eventually did and got, got funded research in it, but basically these pictures started to come together and most of the patients were um, physiologically compromised because we truly got polytrauma. Our nursing staff got a phone call and if somebody had fallen from standing, they weren't delivered to our trauma center, they went next door to our normal ER. So you had pre-selected from a state, the whole state system, the worst cases, the highest energy, the early phases of trauma care where it was your hands, plain films, and, and also response to the first, the first treatment. And in those cases, massive fluid resuscitation or inland saltwater drowning as we learned to call it because we hadn't, didn't have massive transfusion requirements then. So then uh, we, we built a new building around that and you trained there. We kept the resuscitation area close to the OR. We've got orthopedic hands on these patients early on. And remember as airbags, seatbelts uh, came into the civilian world and our colleagues taking care of war fighters had helmets and everything, 82% of the patients coming through the door had significant musculoskeletal injury. So those of us that were interested in that were in heaven. And even though it was hell on your personal and family life and threatened all of that a bit because of the hours. There was a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel because in our care case, and you were there, they built us a new trauma unit. It got better. They gave us the budget to recruit excellent partners, most of them. And all the cliches about hiring better than yourself are true. And, and people like Bobby Brumbach with a, a mind as sharp as I've ever seen in, in designing studies and Attila Polka with an attitude that beat all get out and hands of gold that you'd find Attila doing an open tibia and then come back two hours later, he'd be screwing an odontoid back on. And so that's how I got interested and that's how I stayed interested. And, um, and the second fellowship I did before I showed up in Switzerland was with Tom Rudy. And I will say that the energy was a little bit lesser there, but the reason that was such a gem to me is I had been out in private practice 
uh, for a year and a half and then had a year long trauma fellowship before I arrived to do my European fellowship. And here I had this master surgeon teaching me finer points. And I don't want to call them tricks. That's cheaper. They, but the, some of the finer points of soft tissue handling and stuff like that. And because I'd been out there for a while, I felt like I, I was wearing Velcro. He'd have a point that I would have missed if I, if he was trying to teach me when I was a resident, do you know what I mean? And, Oh, yeah. a fine point. And, and I, I was going through cases where I had a problem and um, he would do this fine point and he'd throw out a little, a, a little solution to this problem. And it stuck to me. And I remembered it because, because I knew it was relevant. I wouldn't have known its relevance three or four years before. Tell us about how did you articles, articles published, the, uh, the uh, young and Burgess classification. And yeah, well, some of our best stuff is on the femur where I'm, I'm the, you know, 12th author or something, but the, 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 the vision we had was volume shared amongst in our in our really critical growth years three people and then the fact that that um nobody was threatened by the other's excellence i'm going to get this a long way to answer this but we were all pretty good surgeons and none of us were stupid but it was obvious bobby brumbeck thought things saw things very clearly and bobby and i were pretty good as surgeons and so but it so it didn't threaten Attila and me that bobby was the smartest and it didn't threaten Bobby and me that Attila was the best surgeon because we weren't bad, but he was special. And then talking to the, um, having my hands on all those pelvises, having a radiologist that obviously is uh, from your town uh, now and was a chief of radiology, but Jeremy Young, uh, who worked at the uh, University of, uh, you know, South MUSC. Uh, you often had a fight in those days. It was all plain films. There was no digitalized thing. So we, we, we shared a... Uh, an x-ray room with radiology. And so we didn't fight with them. We would have early in the morning and uh, late, at, late at night, that was our room to just go over. We went over every case every day. I think you were there for some of that. that whoever was in the hospital, we review their cases. And for instance, on Young and Burgess, um, we loved the Toronto classification, Marv, Marv Tyle and George Pennell, before Marv got into his second AO type classifying. But, and it seemed to make sense, lateral compression, AP compression. Jeremy and I would be sitting there and I'd have a feeling that somebody would be tapped in a low-grade lateral impact and somebody would be really hit hard. And somebody might be hit by a flat-fronted vehicle and truly run over. You know, when, when you hit with a flat-fronted vehicle as a pedestrian, you, you don't do a, a fender vault or a hood vault. You, you get thrown out in front and occasionally run over uh, as you do in a construction site. And we'd classify them. We were using Pennell and Tiles classification. And so it was totally there vocabulary we used and Jeremy said and uh, you know where I forget who said it first but uh, he came to the idea of publishing it he said that one looks like a little higher uh, a, a little more energy hitting from the side you call that lateral compression yeah that we do and and so we started to type them and it became relevant and we noticed our I'm going to go to lateral compression type threes I don't, I don't mean to get the specifics but where it's crushed in on one side notebook book on the other and you said well he was hit by a flat fronted vehicle or who we and I was there when we cut his clothes off and he actually had tire marks, you know, on him. It's, it is logical that then that appeared to sweep the pelvis to one side. And we eventually did, looked at 300 and some odd pelvic ring disruptions, including some acetabuli. And, and sure enough, there's some pretty heavy injuries around your pelvis. But if you take a look around, those LC3s don't have much other bodily injury. The turn, and, and, and to really understand how that happens, you have to uh, go over to the medical examiner's office and see the people that got crushed where it hit them in more of the two spots. They, they were not survivors.
by definition. Yeah. That's what happened. And, and I had a partner in Bobby who had the unique ability to ask a question simply that we all wanted to know. When a locked femoral nailing was brand new, we had some, uh, some that didn't do well. He, we had the humility and the common sense to say, where did we make mistakes and identify pre-op, intra-op and post-op for that or, and then second questions logically. Uh, and it, we weren't ashamed to ask simple questions. Can you wait bare early on them? Do you have to lock them at both ends? Um, we also sucked up the knowledge of others. Uh, we were told in lock nailing that you had to dynamize, if you were locked at both ends, you had to dynamize at 12 weeks or you're gonna make a non-union machine. And we all would gather in, in our case in, in, in Napa and, and um, the chief of trauma, Don Wiss at LA County was there and said, oh, my, my agricultural workers and my bikers never come back for follow-up. And I'm, I'm, I was sure for a while I was creating non-unions and we were listening and, and Bob Winquist was there and, and a bunch of us just nailing a lot of femurs. And he said, they all heal by the way. So that's a myth coming from the European professors. And then Bobby designed an article to take a look at that and showed essentially that was true. So it was, I mean, from pelvic fractures and saying that looks to be a little more energy. And, uh, and, and then in, in the end, we snuck in uh, 400 uh, car crash reconstructions where I could tell you with each one of these cars while I'm looking at their orthopedic injuries what the delta V was at the time of impact, change in velocity, and what the PDOF or principal direction of force is, and and musculoskeletal injury inside that inside that place, um, uh, place being the inside of the car, uh, gave you a very good picture of how it was hit, how the body reacted, because the hard tissues tend to break in the patterns we're all familiar with. But and and we would relate that to how the car got crushed and or broken or how the ejection went in somebody that left left the vehicle. Uh, it was, and it just all seemed to make sense. And that's where some of the articles came from. It was humility of the three guys recognizing other guys' expertise, the common sense you get. And then I honestly believe that still from the beginning, Langdon, even when the guys joined me after the first year, we still had another couple of years in that environment where we were seeing the patients. So you'd see a pelvic injury and you say to the general surgeon, let me stabilize that. Depending on the decade, that would be a sheet, a binder, an X-fix. And I brought sterile X-fixes into the resuscitation area, all that stuff. But And they'd say, no, that we're going to do the laparotomy. And you'd physically have almost an altercation. And what I did the first year and the other guys did, we'd scrub in on the, in, on the uh, on exploratory lap. And so when we saw it, we were correct, the blood was on the retroperineum, we'd be right in the surgical field making fun of our colleagues. And when we occasionally chose made the wrong guess we were embarrassed right in front of our colleagues but you got much more savvy and much more predictable if you were there during the first uh, you know physical exam of the patient within minutes and um, a plain film would tell you a lot you know you'd see one one of those apc3s type and cross them for six who are you is is blood pressure stable yeah it's not going to be in five minutes so let's go and they thought you were a wizard and you were just applying common sense. Tell us a little bit more about your trajectory through the AO. Well, it, it's, it's not what I had hoped at first, but because uh, I came back and I was uh, devoted. And then, you know, I, I had my little run in Albany. And when I came back for my last couple of years, I had been the only guy that had been to the Swiss course. So I got called in for every plating, every nailing. And nailings were open up the femur and 
sending a guide wire up north and banging it through the piriformis and retrieving it from the buttock, then reducing and coming down because we didn't have image intensification or anything else. And occasionally it was sawing a nail for, for length. Um, and then I got the nickname A.O. Andy back at the shop when I came back to shock trauma and they put that over my door in the old building. And my office was in a trailer placed on the, on the roof of the building, a, you know, a regular as in a, for freight and those that put on board ship, and they piped in AC and electricity. That was my office, but it, it said A.O. Andy over the door. So I was a purist and we were down the street from um, Paoli, uh, Pennsylvania, but the A.O. royalty, they were concentrating on Seattle and, um, and, and for good reason. I mean, Ted Hansen and those guys were there. And by that time, we always wanted to be as good as, as Harborview. And we, and we, that was where we took our, we felt we were a solid number two. And in my heart, I felt a little better than that, but publicly, I certainly said we were a good number two. And, uh, but AO paid us some attention. We taught the pure technique. Uh, um, sometimes we fought them on uh, plating. We never, we never had any issues with. We occasionally had issues on their thoughts about nailing and, and external fixation. They were sometimes a little slower uh, to, to, to change in that. They were so far ahead in plating. And, and, and as I noted on my fellowship, we plated most everything. And there were some that, you know, that was the culture there at that time. The, the, the problem was they were so damn good surgically that plates did very well and, uh, in, in my Swiss fellowship. And so I think we kept a pretty pure technique. We were good platers. We in, then inherited um, an upper extremity surgeon who was technically gifted AO techniques and added a couple of his own and Andy Agelsater. And, and um, they would try out new things, uh, un, early unreamed nails, um, uh, early rhea things. We, we were a handy place down, down uh, south of uh, what we considered Paoli, the, our contact. And I had money then, a budget that I could keep. Nobody wanted trauma, so we all joined the same professional corporation. So it was trauma orthopods, general surgeons, neurosurgeons, anesthesia, and critical care docs, and infectious disease. We were all in the same professional corporation. And you could, uh, you, we didn't earn much in our base salary, but if we had a bit of a bonus, we could keep it. Or, and then there was a limit on that. And then it became yours to spend. So for an X year period, and I don't remember what it was, but it was more than five and maybe as much as 10, every Maryland resident went to the Swiss AO course. And for a few years there, when I had a big bonus I had to spend, many of my Maryland residents went to the advanced AO course a second time in, in Switzerland. So we became uh, pretty good consumers of the product, the, both the, the basic and the advanced courses. And I think alums ended up pretty well thought of within within the AO fraternity and ended up as course instructors and stuff like that. Fortunate enough, you helped me um, get over there and go see Tom Rudy and Peter Botter and yeah. Carol Cherney and Christian Credick and I mean it was a and Emil Lotonel. Yes, um, we flew him. We flew Emil over to Baltimore. And we operated with him. Yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. How do you feel about your experience versus what you see? currently well one th one thing i have to fight to make sure our kids since since all of these have changed a bit the, the, and this is going to sound peripheral i have to fight for our kids when they want to start them earlier and early into orthopedics i have to make sure that in their first year 
the courses they take that are non-ortho and the electives they do have value to orthopedics. Some of them just didn't, but some of them did. Plastics, radiology, and, and actually being active in a good general surgery trauma service, learning how to uh, resuscitate a patient, get in the belly now and again, and work in an ICU and, and, and do a, an H&P on a polytraumatized patient from a general surgery point of view. I think that's as close as I can to give them that old thing where they're called in early, was to make sure that at least in their first year, they really are. And when we first came to Houston, for instance, uh, we were busier than, we, we, we think we're the busiest level one in the country. We're, and we were busier than LA County, busier than Northwestern, busier than Harvard. At that time, Northwestern had nine residents, uh, LA County had 10, I think, and Harvard had 12. We had three. So our residents were hopping. And they actually spent a lot of time just living in the ER. And what I noted was they were asked to see, it wasn't quite as easy as I had it walking across from the OR, but they had to be there because they almost never left. Um, and so they were called in early on several of the polytraumatized patients. And that sort of happened by the culture of this place. And I thought that maintained some of that gift of being there early. Uh, but it was almost by accident. I think they're missing something on that. Um, at the young attending level, I think, uh, you know, you're sitting in your office or you're in the OR, and, and depending on where you are when uh, a, a new consult comes in. And many things have been done to those patients, and, and many studies have been generated. And you may be distant even in your clinic at times, and something comes through, and it's a call from an ER uh, you know, a hundred yards away and maybe three or four flights away or maybe 10. And so I, I think that may be gone forever at the level I enjoyed. And we try to do whatever we can to substitute for that. I think it's the best I can say. Yeah. Uh, we, we're up to five residents now. So th that's a good and a bad thing. Um, the three was crazy um, in, in this center, but um, five is keeps them down where the, the action is, and um, and also uh, they almost get as much. The, 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 I was I was dead serious when I said uh, fighting for and getting in some of the exploratory laps because remember there was no we didn't have mini laps even we were opening people and exploring them. So if you had a bet on a retroperitoneal contribution of, to a bleed, you were there to verify. You were, you were there when the laparotomy was done and you didn't have a CAT scan that showed it. You, and you were fighting in the early days because we were all um, getting used to what a pelvic fracture really meant and the downside of doing a laparotomy when it wasn't necessary. Often we'd get in and we'd see a couple of small mesenteric bleeders, but the guy was bulging at you and you'd had a, a, an animated discussion of somebody where the pathology was. And then as the technology came in and we learned to stabilize things, the things you, you small points, well, you, you wrap a pelvis up and because we knew how to have an, an interventional angio, but interventional angio is more exploratory for non-emergent conditions. So it's, it's some distance from the ER, the first ones. And you send a patient over and you don't escort the patient and you forget that some tech or some general surgery intern is going to take your stabilizing force off your binder, your sheet, your ex, just do something. And that's one of the reasons we actually like to ex fix a little more than I think is common sense because it was harder for them to screw it up. And you just had to make a low profile one to fit into the, to the scanner. But so that you learned that you 
you send them over with an escort that, that can't screw it up. And because every time you'd send them over, in the first days before you stabilize them, the physical act of moving a patient would often destabilize them. It was as if they bled and their first clot sort of stopped and, they, and you caught up with them with a couple of units of blood and some fluid challenge and you moved them onto the table, a gantry for their next phase without any stabilization on. And all of a sudden there'd be a code blue or whatever you'd call it in the recess, in the uh, x-ray suite. And you knew what it was. They'd busted loose because they were being moved around without being stabilized. So there was all kinds of stuff to learn and enough volume where the pattern of these things really, really taught you a lesson. What advice would you have for surgeons coming out of fellowship? Uh, what, what should they be looking for? Volume. Um, and, and, and then the rest sounds like cliches. Uh, a boss that truly gets what he's getting in hiring a woman or a man that, that is, uh, uh, wants to be a traumatologist. I would suggest being very wary of, hey, we have a private group here that's gonna do some trauma. You'll, we're hiring you because we can't do it all. You'll be our traumatologist in our private group. You'll, get, you'll eat what you kill. Don't do that because <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to make a living that way. You're gonna need a title of chief of trauma or somewhere they can supplement your income. But basically someone that's committed to give you a place to work. Because I think the, the men and women that go into trauma nowadays, they're, I think they're the best of the orthopods and I love orthopedics, I really do. And they can take anything for a while. And if they can't, they shouldn't be in the, on the playing field. But there's gotta be light at the end of the tunnel. And the main repetitive thing about retaining people is give you a place to do the work. The crime time and time again, and, and I know you know, because you've, you've got some gray hair, it's, it's been, the, the place is full, you've got the energy and the personnel and there's no place to get your work done. Well, once in a while, you know, get over it. If that's the pattern and every night you're getting home late to a family that you, you love, to, to some hours that you really have had to surrender during the week because you've been doing emergent stuff, if your first job perpetually gets you home three or four hours later than it should, that's got a clock on it. In other words, don't be a whiner and, and, and pick a cliche about being a problem solver, not a problem causer. But you have to be part of solving that issue and, ha and or have a boss if you're the one hired that's committed to helping you solve that issue so that you can get your work done. It's just the nature of the beast. And it's just too many, too many times I've sent people out and, th and they haven't lasted because they, they didn't have a version of that, uh, a commitment to it. And the easy way to say is a trauma OR, you know, it's in the optimal resources doc in the American college, but it's serious. And I sound a little dramatic about that, but the versions of that are what's, uh, I think, short sheeted a lot of careers. Um, so that's it. And, you know, we're not all about money, but being compensated well for what you do. And, and you're not going to make that on what you collect. I've, we've, we hit 19%. We're lucky any place I've been at collections of the trauma service, but the hospital, if it's a decent enough to employ you as a traumatologist, uh, should be doing fairly well. If it's chosen to participate in trauma care, there should be some state funding and the hospitals usually, usually do well and can supplement or title you so that you have a decent income. You, you, you didn't pick pediatric ortho or trauma to get rich, you know? 
but you can't be a sucker either. Um, and then uh, partners that understand what you do. I think um, depends if you're in with a group of traumatologists, choosing a cast that gets along. That's what, that's my favorite thing late in my life is to assemble a group, not just of excellence, but that really complement each other. And, and we've gotten lucky a couple times at that. And uh, Houston being ex extremely lucky that way. And, uh, and so that, that's my selections of, uh, or keeping, you know, if you're in a private practicing, it's good. It wouldn't be the, wouldn't be the worst thing to be the second one to take that job. Because if you're replacing someone, they've probably learned something on it when they took the first one. And they had, I, I've, I've seen this more than a few times, been involved in close to it myself when I, when I left shock. But they, they have this place and you're, you're just going to eat what you kill and, uh, and um, good for you. And the, the numbers don't look so good. And all of a sudden, you're on a lot. And which wouldn't be bad if you, if you either had a place to work or we're getting compensated fairly. The combo of having neither is probably, it depends on the individual. It might be worth it if you are living in, geographically in a thing that makes you and your family happy as hell in it, and then you're willing to work longer on the project. If everything else is not quite right about the place, we get more mileage out of alums of that place going back to a place they already love. They're willing to put up with an extra couple of years of hardship to try and solve the problems. And frequently they do, and they stay and they fix it. And sometimes they, they don't and they have to leave. But if they train there, they go in with a little, uh, you know, a little bigger heart to, they got what's wrong with it and they're willing to stick an extra year or two or, you know, make it three instead of two or five instead of three. That's a long answer, I'm yeah. sorry, but those are the failures. Maybe just, uh, share a little bit about what you like outside of orthopedics. I know you, you know you like to go to Maine and you like cars. And um... I, um, as I'm slowing down here in, in Houston, I, I get more and more time. And I and I've had a family house in Maine since my parents retired there in the '70s, early '70s. And I like the Maine coast. And I have a little boat. And I just love being on the water up there. I'm not a fisherman or a lobsterman. My neighbors are lobstermen, but I just like getting out on on the ocean and. Uh, with a smaller 26, 27 feet boat, that's uh, that's pretty small, but um, 29 foot, I guess it is. And uh, <laughs> so I get bounced around a lot, but I, and watching the main coast from both being on the coast and, and, and going to the small inlets and f photographing that to be frank, so a lot of photography. Um, we have a transportation museum up there. I think when I retire fully, you it's got a lot of folks like me that are retired um, mostly they're for real, they're ex-pilots or um, ex-car jocks, and they work as volunteers in the museum, restoring old vehicles and stuff. I haven't, I used to do a little of that in my teenage years with, with some friends, uh, but uh, that would excite me a bit. And, um, and so that's most of it. And cars, I, uh, I, uh, I enjoy my automobiles, I have, and so I, I, but I don't do many deep mechanics anymore. I, I, I did one way long ago, but I, now I have somebody change the oil even. I'm, <laughs> so it's a lot of work for me to turn the key. <laughs> you know, uh, and well, uh, my, I have one last question for you, Andy. And um, you're a great storyteller. And so um, maybe you could just give us one um, 
fun uh, vignette, fun story from your career. I got one. You can edit this out too. So uh, I got a call. I was taking a guest out to dinner while I was on call. We were about a block away, and we got a call. It was a pelvic fracture. I think I've told you this story before. And we came back and entered the building from a restaurant in downtown Baltimore. We came up through the waiting room in the new building, and the family was already there. The guy must have been helicoptered in from the, from the suburbs. And they, I heard them, they didn't know who we were. We were just walking through and had to go through that waiting room area. And they said, um, they were saying, so he was hit by that, that, that car, the guy with his blinking lights on, he must've stopped you, at least he saw him. And they talk about their family members who was a pedestrian struck. And he said, yeah, it was that Ford, big Ford Explorer, that, the Eddie Bauer, yeah, 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 I saw that green one. So, so upstairs I go and the digital films were new and my crew was sitting around with pelvic films up in the air. And they said, Dr. Burgess, what do you think? And if, as you remember, and uh, I forgot to tell in the beginning of the story, our pleasure was we trained all of Bethesda, Walter Reed, Union Memorial, Johns Hopkins, and joint disease residents at Shock Drum. So you remember we had quite a group. Oh yeah. So at nighttime, there was a few people on and they were looking at these films and, 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 it, and a couple of them were fairly new and they didn't know it was Burgess and he had this classification and blah, blah, he claims he knows a lot. And um, I, I came up to the board and they said, what do you think it is? And I said, oh, this is a, that kind of sensitivity. All right, it's a lateral compression, but probably of a pedestrian. And uh, the way that struck, that's a high strike. It, I probably hit with an SUV. Where's he from? Where'd he get hit up there? Oh, in Oseburgs, man, everybody's got a Ford Expedition up there. Was it Eddie, was an Eddie Bauer model? And coming behind me was the helicopter pilot wrapping up his, his uh, belt from the stretcher. And he'd been at the scene. And he comes walking across, and, and I, he heard me said, hit by an SUV. And I, hear, I feel him stop to my side, and he's going, yeah, yeah. And he's still rapping. And he's looking at my team that this legendary guy has gotten that correct. Then I called the model and the color that hit this guy and created his pelvic fracture. And the, the, these young doctors went, holy crap. And obviously within 10 minutes, they figured out we were talking BS, but that was the sweetest 10 minutes of my life. <laughs> where, they, where they thought this wise old man had not, not only put a classification on it, but identified the vehicle that did the damage. <laughs>